Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we will be in Numbers 5 tonight. Um, and we'll uh, pick up where we left off. They are getting ready to travel through the wilderness. And that's the book of Numbers. We're going through the wilderness in the book of Numbers. So they have done a few things to prepare. They've organized their camp. They've put everybody in place. And they have, remember, gotten the law in Leviticus, what they should be doing, but whether or not they're actually doing it is what the next chapter is all about. So God tells them to start doing the things that they were supposed to do back in Leviticus. So um, there are people that are ceremonially unclean from Leviticus 15, and they are people with leprosy, a weird disease that not very many people get. Um, but leprosy throughout the Bible is going to represent kind of uncleanness or people that are defiled. Um, and, and leprosy is contagious, so that's a good thing. And it's interesting to talk about contagions in America today. Um, so uh, contagions do get quarantined, and that's where we start. So here we are in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, which they say in Leviticus 13, if, you're, if you want to note these things. Everyone who has discharges... If you want to get back into the grossness of discharges, that's back in Leviticus 15. Uh, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse, which is Leviticus 21. Isn't it nice how when you've read the law, all of this just, now we can understand the rest of it. And the Bible builds on itself like you're supposed to read it in order. Um, verse 3, you shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp that they may not defile their camps in the midst, midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses. So the children of Israel did. So when you're facing the wilderness, everything's in its place. The tabernacle's built. The Levites are ready for their um, ceremonies that they're going to do and the, the sacrifices, the feasts. Numbers one, God counts the people and he names them. Numbers two, he organizes them in a camp. Numbers three and four, he tells his servants to get to work on jobs that he assigns them. Numbers five, now they're supposed to kind of look at their moral health, their physical health, and getting everything in order. So their time at Sinai was supposed to be preparation for this journey. Initially, this was supposed to be about a 14-day trip from here to the Holy Land. So they're preparing for a 14-day trip. It's going to turn into 40 years, but they're just preparing for a short thing. And a lot of times it's like that when we get saved. We think the distance between getting saved and doing great things for the kingdom, you know, is about 14 days. And sometimes God wants to prepare his people longer than that. I also want to say one thing too, so there's no misunderstanding. God is talking to his children here. He's not holding the Egyptians accountable for what, this be, what he's asking them to do here. He's holding his children accountable for what they should be doing. And it's, I think that's an important measure at any point in the Bible when we read it. So we need to keep in mind the wilderness for his children is not the destination, right? The purpose of our life is not to be lost in the wilderness for our whole life. Um, but that is going to be what's there. And in 1 Corinthians 10, it says all things are written for our information. Like we're supposed to read the Old Testament and bring it into our own lives and look at it. Um, so when we commit our life to Christ, there are a population of Christians that commit their life to Christ, but then they don't do what they're supposed to do, and they're kind of lost in the wilderness for years. And their spiritual life never really ignites because they're not doing the things that they're supposed to do. So when we look at this chapter, yes, we're talking about Israel, but try to think of your own life a little bit too. And I want to point out one thing with the moving people outside the camp. Every other ancient culture, they just killed these people. So for the Israelites to say we want them to be outside the camp and not kill them is an amazing shift of mercy. 
right? You don't just slaughter people with leprosy, right? Or, or, or give them up or put them in the front line of your battlefield, right? So this is something that the Israelites and the way God ordains things, he essentially creates a separated space for sick people or what we call hospitals. And it's the first time in world history that you see this kind of practice taking place. And the Jewish people, and throughout the last 2,000 years, Christian people have been the founders of hospitals all over the planet. It's one of the first things Christians do when they come into an area is they create places for sick, pe sick people to go and get merciful, merciful treatment. And I think that's amazing. And it should speak to how we think about mission, missionary or uh, um, how we do outreach kinds of things too. Um, so this is clearly defined in Leviticus. Again, I'm not going to get into all the discharge and leprosy and everything else. You can go back and listen to the podcast on those if you want to. But it assumes that the people that have read Leviticus will use it as a manual to determine who should be outside the camp and who should be inside the camp. A very clear manual on how to do that. Leprosy then is an image of sin. It is a image of the stench of sin in our life. It is not a sweet aroma to the Lord. When people have leprosy, that's not something the Lord uh, is blessed by. It's not something that we should see as a good thing. It's what we would see spiritually as a defilement image in the camp of Israel. So if you've got people running around with, with leprosy, separate them, quarantine them, get them out of the way. So if you want God to dwell in your camp, get the leprosy out of your life might be an interesting way to kind of learn from that image, right? And when people get stuck in the wilderness, there's usually some sort of sin that's ongoing in their life something they won't let go of, something they think is kind of private. Problem with leprosy is it's not private at all. It's very public kinds of sin, and it's the worst kind, and it's the one we start with. So if you love God, you keep his commandments, John 14, 15. Blessed are those that do the commandments that they're given, that they might have the right to the tree of life and enter through the gates of the city, Revelations 22, 14. People easily can fool themselves that a little bit of sin in your camp is okay. And that's a problem because that little bit of sin in your camp is going to stop you from having God living in the center of your life. Uh, James 1.22, one of our favorite verses, don't just be hearers of the word of God. It's nice to come to Bible study, but go out and do what you hear in the word of God. You can't just be hearers of it. You have to be doers of it only. And the end of that verse is be doers of the word, not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Part of that idea is that you're convincing yourself that certain things are okay when they might not be. And you know what these things are because the Lord convicts you of it. And then when you deal with that, the Lord convinced you of the next thing. And then you deal with that and the Lord, and it's just this whole journey of working this stuff out of your life to prepare for the ministry God has for you. So we get to the next section, which is not so public as leprosy. Leprosy is easily visible. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel when a man or woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, and that person is guilty. Then he shall confess the sin that he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full plus one-fifth of it and give it to the one he's wronged. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest. In addition to the ram of atonement, which is the atonement is made for him, every offering of all the holy things of the children of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his, and every man's holy things shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest is his. That's a lot of words to say. If you've ripped somebody off, make it right. If you've gotten away with thievery, if you've treated someone unfairly, you've got anything in your life that would be inappropriate. Look at how verse 6 says, unfaithfulness, not against the person, but against the Lord. Any sin is really against the Lord. So when you do these kinds of things, any when a man or woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, that person is guilty. If you're guilty, that's not as easy to see, but it's something that you know in your heart. So if you're guilty, let's deal with that before we try to take a journey with the Lord, right? If you've done something even maybe before you came into a covenant with the Lord, let's go make that right. Because the Lord doesn't give a, he doesn't give a timestamp to Moses on this at all. If you have something that's outstanding in your life before we go into this journey together, you got to deal with that. And I like sometimes how like Alcoholics Anonymous does that process. One of the steps is to go make things right with people. Sometimes those things hanging on can be a spiritual defilement in your life that really gets in the way of your relationship with the Lord. Um, 
The idea of making restitution is also from Leviticus 6. Again, those are building blocks for all of this. Um, and I love the idea that you're not, it's, you are wronging the victim, but in verse 6, you're also being unfaithful against the Lord. To be faithful to the Lord is to keep his commandments and do the things that the commandments say. So God's not going to travel with a bunch of people that have leprosy in their camp, and he doesn't want to travel with a bunch of people that have guilt on their hearts. Guilt can wreck that journey. So God knows it, and he says, I need you to deal with the guilt, even though that's not as easily seen as the leprosy. You're going to confess those things, verse 7. Make the restitution over and above what you did. So you're going to actually pay extra, uh, the one-fifth piece in verse 7. You're going to deal with that moral and physical health, and then you give a ram in, in verse 8. And if you remember from Leviticus, the ram was for the sin offering. So you've done something wrong, you're going to make it right with the person, and then you're going to give a ram to the Lord and make it right with the Lord. Verse 8 uses the word trespass which is in, in the Hebrew, it's a shound. Um, and it's an offering for, you would do that as an offering for sin and the alleviation of guilt. It's a very specific word. It's not the same word that we saw with trespass offerings. So it's a word that really means sin. So the ram is the actually the right uh, sacrifice that you'd make for that sin offering. So when you have a guilty conscience, a shound, you can't serve the Lord and you can't travel with the Lord. So you have to deal with those. Luckily, people that have and live in condemnation have a path to go forward. We can be forgiven in that because Romans 8, 1, there, there, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So if you're living and you feel condemned or guilty about something, a lot of Christian counseling is to help people deal with that guilt because you just can't move forward until you've dealt with some of those things. And you shouldn't be feeling condemned because in Jesus Christ, you're not condemned. Psalm 103.12, another one of these verses that most of you know, as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove his transgressions from us. And, ver and 1 John 1, 1.9, am I going too fast? All right. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If those things are true, a Christian shouldn't be living with a bunch of guilt in their life. If you, it's possible to deal with it, deal with it. I even love in these verses, God provides a provision for if the person isn't around or is unavailable, then you can just go in and make that restitution to the priesthood. Because it's not really about getting the money back to the person as much as it's about dealing with that guilty conscience and doing what you need to do to make it right. Um, in that sense, God kind of gets the, his nation to clean up their acts before they go and they travel with them. He counts and organizes them. He names them. He gives them work to do, and he expects them to do it with joy. And then he re he's asking them to get rid of the corruption, get rid, move the leprosy outside your camp, deal with the guilt, do the heart work that you need to do and make things right so that you can be free from sin, Romans 6.22. And you have a clear conscience to move in power. And throughout the New Testament, I love they use the phrase when you do word searches on this, they'll use the phrase to speak with boldness. You have no witness if you're sinning all the time. But if you can deal with those things with accountability from brothers and sisters, I think a spouse is a good person to help you deal with sin in your life. But if you can start wrestling with and, and winning the battles with sin through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, you can speak with boldness in those situations. And God wants that of his people. All of this is for people that just want to go on a trip with God. And remember, that's the goal here. We want a journey with God. The people of Israel have said, yeah, we want a journey with God, but Moses, you do all the talking. Um, so in verses 9 and 10, those offerings become the property of the Levites. Um, and I'm sure the Levites, uh, um, it's not the kind of thing you want to have happen, but there's work for them to be involved with and counsel those people. Verse 11, now we're going to deal with the hidden sins. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully towards him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it's concealed that she's defiled herself, and there was no witness against her, nor was she caught, if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, the husband, and he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife. This happens to me all the time. Um, 
although she's not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. This does not happen. In fact, there's no record of this ever happening in the Bible. So this is one of those passages people really take issue with, but I'll let me finish the passage. He shall bring the offering required for her one-tenth of an ephath of barley meal, and he shall pour no oil on it, no frankincense on it, because it's a grain offering of jealousy. That's a new kind of offering. An offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. This is a horrible situation. But this is stuff where, in the first one, we got obvious visible leprosy defiling the camp. In the second one, we've got this guilty conscience that you should be able to identify defiling the camp. And in this third one, we've got these guys that are jealous of their wives with no evidence, and they just suspect that their wife is up to something fishy when they're out with the sheep, right? And they just got something sick in their heart going on. And the Lord says, we got to deal with that too. I don't want a bunch of jealous husbands. And I don't know if this is just part of like a sheep herding culture kind of thing, um, but apparently the Lord knows what he's doing. There's a thing on this, and there's some 20 verses that deal with this particular situation. And you think, okay, so what's the Lord doing here? Because clearly the Lord put it in here for a reason. And if you look at it in context to the chapter, he's getting the camp to clean up their act. And you want to have right relationships in the family. And if that's broken, you got to fix it. So God gives them a way to fix it, which is nice. So even suspicion is something that's going to not be there. So in verse 12, there's two things. They're astray and unfaithful. So you have both a legal thing, they've gone astray, and unfaithfulness is an issue of spirituality. So that's what's under question here. Verse 13 is an explanatory clause saying this is only for the situation where they get away with it because adultery in Leviticus was punishable by death. Right? It's why people brought the woman to Jesus and wanted her to be killed. So what about the husband in this situation? The reality here is we're not dealing with adultery. That's Leviticus 20, verse 10. We're dealing with the jealous husband here. That husband that has no reason or evidence to be jealous of his wife, but he still is. So he can do this if he wants to, and let's get this handled. So he wants to do this for who knows what reason. Because if you look at what's going to happen next, most husbands wouldn't want to do this to their wives. So you'd have to be in a pretty bad spot in your marriage to want to march your wife up in front of the priests and have this process happen, right? So this guy's messed up because if you want that for your wife, there is not a loving relationship in that marriage. Something's busted. Still, God's going to give him a way to fix it. Uh, note also in verse... Uh, 14 that we're dealing with a spirit of jealousy that's the topic god's going to care about that and i think this is kind of cool that god puts us in here because god cares about even your heart of jealousy which is maybe there's a sin there but maybe there's not but he wants to deal with that too verse 15 it uses barley in this situation you should know about barley that's the cheapest of all the grains that are part of this culture it's the least expensive it's the most worthless because this is a sick, embarrassing situation. We're not going to spend anything on it. And it says specifically, no frankincense. No, This isn't going to smell good. This isn't going to look good. There's no shared feast or barbecue that goes with it. This is just a sad, sick situation. And it's, I hope, as embarrassing for the guy as it is for the girl. Right? So here's what happens. Verse 16. The priest shall bring her near, this woman, and set before her the Lord. You should also know, kind of like with leprosy, the mercy of having a place to go with your leprosy. We read this today and we think this is horrible treatment of women, yes? Culturally speaking, this is better than a patron, uh, a patern, uh, oh my goodness, paternal society? Patriarchal. patriarchal society. This is better than a patriarchal society where a husband could just kill the wife that he doesn't want anymore. She gets a little old, she doesn't like him, she doesn't tell good jokes, and a guy could just take her out. No, Paul, you can't do that. <laughs> it was a horrible situation. So again, we got a situation where you don't get to do that. If you're following the Lord, you don't get to cast off your wife or have her, have her um, killed. You bring her to the priest, verse 16, and set her before the Lord, and the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that's on the floor of the tabernacle, which lends to the argument that the tabernacle had a dirt floor, 
um, take some of the dust of the tabernacle and put it into the water. You're going to sprinkle a little dirt in there. So you're making kind of mud water, right? It's odd, but it's essential that this is just water with dust. And that's what it is. There's nothing poisonous about water with dust, right? A little gross. There's nothing wrong with it. So there has to be something miraculous that happens in the next set of verses. Then the priest shall stand with the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head, and put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have his hand in, have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness while you are under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you. I'm going to stop right there. If you're this woman, this is the point at which you can say, and there's a little pause here at the end of verse 20, right? This is the stopping point where the priest would stop and say, okay, which is it? Are you guilty or are you not guilty? Now, as a woman, you're looking at a cup of water with some dust in it. You have every ability to lie at this point. There's nothing poisonous about that water. There's nothing that's going to do any damage to you whatsoever. The only way you would feel like you want to tell the truth here is if you believe that God can do something in this moment. If God knows you're guilty and God can do something about that guilt. You're making a vow before God about what you're going to do here. And then the next part becomes relevant if you believe God is active. Then the priest shall put the woman under oath under the oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. Water with dust in it, does, ladies, does not make your belly swell and it doesn't make your thigh rot. The only way that would happen is if God intervened with a miracle. So if you, as, if you don't believe there's a God in this situation, the woman would just say, I didn't do it. Drink the water and look at her husband and go, See, I didn't do it. I'm good. Even if she was guilty, you would say, I didn't do it, drink the water and get away with it. But most people in Israel had seen God move on the mountain. There wasn't atheism in the camp of Israel. So this is kind of a big deal. So verse 22, and may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach, make your belly swell and your thigh rot. Then the woman should say, amen, so be it. Because the woman's claiming she's innocent. And this is a way for her to drink a glass of water and prove to her husband that she's innocent pretty easy path to innocence for these women. Pretty shameful thing for this guy to put his wife through this. It's not going to necessarily make her happy with him. So it's a sad situation. I kept thinking of the kids. If there's any kids involved, can you imagine watching your mom have to go before the priest, take her head covering off, which was a, a thing of honor for her, and have to go through this situation? How embarrassing to watch your parents go through this. But there's going to be healing here. That husband's going to get his answer after she drinks the water and she comes out okay. So I'll reemphasize this situation really never comes up in the Bible. So it must have been preventative. Like it must have actually worked. So guys, either get over your jealousy and don't go through this situation because the only way to go through this is if the guy brings the girl to the priest. And women, don't cheat on your husbands. So if you don't do those things, you never have to drink the bitter water. You never have to be in this situation. Verse 14, uh, the bitter water takes a name. It was water with dust in it, but in verse 14, it's called the bitter water. So through a religious rite, it becomes something else, right? And Catholics go way too far with this in communion. Like, <laughs> it, it's just, now it's just water with dust in it, and they call it bitter water. Stand before God. This is a serious thing. And in this situation, you believe God's going to do something, you need to do it. So that um, oath is presuming the innocence of the woman. If you look carefully at verse 19, if no man has lain with you is presuming her innocence. She is innocent. She's going to drink some water. She's going to move on. That presumption of innocence in a patriarchal society is revolutionary. And it's one of these spots where the Bible has once again, God is giving instruction to the Jewish people. It's going to be a light to the world. We presume innocence and we get to see it right here in the first recorded instance of innocence presumption, which is part of our legal code here in the United States. You're innocent till you're proven guilty, as we see here. So that suspected guilt is not going to be judged by the priest, and it's not being judged by the husband. God himself will step in and judge the situation. You drink the dusty water, 
and you're okay and you're scot-free and that's it and the husband just has to deal with it and he has to deal with it before God. Verse 21, the rotting thigh is a polite way to say rotting private parts, right? The swelling belly is a polite way to say you're not going to be able to have children. And that's a really tough situation. Or the swelling belly could actually be literal, like it could actually make you sick and hurt you and cause damage. And if anyone has stomach problems, you know how absolutely horrible that can be. And then verse 22, the word amen there in the Hebrew literally means so be it or let it be so. Let this thing happen to me that you've said. So then uh, the process goes on. The priest shall write these curses in a book and he scrapes off those curses into the water. And that was kind of a way to make the words be something that you consumed. She, she would literally eat the, the words as part of her drink. He shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and the water that brings a curse shall enter her and become better, bitter. And the priest shall take the grain offering of the jealousy, that's the barley, from the woman's hand, and shall wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. The priest shall take a handful of the offering as its memorial portion, burn it on the altar, and afterwards make the woman drink the water. Okay, drink it. And when he has made her drink the water, then it shall be. If she's defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully towards her husband, the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and that her belly will swell and her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among her people because she's guilty. And the only way that that would happen is if God has then judged her through this process. But if the woman has not defiled herself and she is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive of children. Verse 33, you're, you're taking that symbolic thing and transferring the words. Uh, this is similar to an Exodus 32. Remember they did the golden calf? Moses pulverized it and he made them drink the golden calf, literally putting the gold flakes in the drink. This is kind of a practice that they did back then. It occurred to me there's only one place in the Bible where this should have happened. It really should have happened. And out of pure mercy and grace, it doesn't happen. And that's with Joseph and Mary. When Joseph has a wife that's conceived a child and he wasn't involved in it, he has ev- but there's no evidence of the infidelity, he should have brought her to the priest and made her drink the bitter water. But the very first part of story, especially if you read the book of Matthew, the very first part of Jesus' story is an act of great mercy and a man who just forgives his wife and trusts her. In part, he had a dream with an angel involved, so he had some reason to do that. But he does it, and it's a beautiful thing when a husband loves his wife so much that he'll take and forgive what he would have suspected to be an infidelity, the greatest crime she could commit in that marriage. But Joseph just forgives it. The Lord tells him to forgive it. He does forgive it. He has mercy. This is part of the message of grace where God says, I love you and I want to forgive you because the alternative is horrible. Right? So anyways, that's about the only spot in the Bible where this probably should have happened, was Joseph should have taken Mary into the priest and gone through this horrible process. The fact that he doesn't is part of the story of Joseph and Mary. Verse 29, this is the law of jealousy when a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife. This is not the spirit of God that comes upon a man, it's the spirit of jealousy that comes upon a man. And then he shall stand the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute all this law upon her. Then the man shall be free from iniquity, but that woman shall bear her guilt. So if the woman is guilty, she's guilty and becomes a curse and gets treated that way and is probably removed from the camp and the man gets to go on with his life. A third of all murder cases in the United States involve a husband, a wife, and some sort of infidelity that breaks that relationship. If the nation of Israel has a problem with fidelity in the marriage, it's a, it's a sickness in the, in the nation that's as bad as leprosy. It's a spiritual sickness when people jump out of their covenant vows with their spouse and have infidelous or, or, or unfaithful relationships. The lack of faith in the marriage carries over to the lack of faith spiritually because it's a, a sin against God when you do that and your spouse. So he's preparing these people for a new kingdom and he wants them to walk in victory. And this, it is not victory to have these situations. It's devastating and even worse for the kids. So all of Israel is, 
expected to do and to, to do this sort of thing. This is not something they hold the Egyptians accountable for. It's not something they judge the Assyrians on or the Persians. It's something that if you choose to follow the Lord, this is important for you. And I think that's a big deal. Like it's how we deal with our own lives. It's not what we do when we accuse or point fingers at other people, right? But if we have things in our life, visible sin, hidden sin, jealousy and envy and strife and covetousness, deal with that stuff if you really want to journey with God and walk with God. So God does all these things. And now his next thing in, in Numbers 5 is get clean. Do these things. And here's a way to do it that he gives you. Number six, totally flips gear. But if you think about it in context, we're really doing all this preparation stuff. Now it gets to the positive stuff. So in chapter five, get clean. But in chapter six, what if, what if you want to do more than just obey God's laws? What if you want to be a secret agent for God? What if you want to just be doing something that is above and beyond? You want to be in the ministry. You want to serve the kingdom. You want to bring dessert to Bible study. You want to just be doing more and better because you're so grateful for what God's done. You have grown up in a family where your parents have been faithful because they followed the law. You are growing up in a country you don't have to worry about people stealing your stuff because they're following God's law. You are in a place where you don't, you get up in the morning and you really don't worry about getting murdered while you're out with your sheep because people are following God's law. And you think, I love the Lord. I love this law. I love peace. What else can I do? God gives you a way to do more. And that's the vow of the Nazarene. And this is kind of cool stuff. Levi read ahead and he was saying the same thing. This is pretty neat. But again, let me say this. These aren't requirements for anybody. The law of the Nazarene is for people that really want to just make a vow to God and set something apart as sacred to God. So this is not for the general church. If you don't have people growing their hair out, you don't sit and say they're less holy or anything like that. That's not what this is about. This is between a person and their God and wanting to do something that's holy, even if they're not a Levite. Because Levites get consecrated anyways, right? So then the Lord, verse chapter 6, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, say to them, when either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. Oh, here's what's going to happen. Nazarite is the Hebrew word nazir. You can see where the word comes from. Um, and it, it literally means set apart. To be just somebody that's set apart and different. Uh, it plays to a huge biblical narrative. So before we get into these laws, I'll tell you that there's a few instances in the Bible where the vow of the Nazarite comes into play. It's often called the vow because it's the only one that we see here in the law. Samson in the book of Judges, chapter 13, verse 5, you see the hint that, that not only Samson, but Samson's mother was a Nazarite. So this is for males or females. There's no gender condition on this. So Danny, if you want to be a Nazarite, you can do it. Um, but Samson's mother was apparently a Nazarite, but Samson definitely was. And he succeeds in his calling despite breaking every one of the Nazarite vows. I mean, we're, we're, we think of it, he got his hair cut as the one, but we're going to go through a set of vows here. And as we go through them, think of the story of Samson. He broke every single one of them. He totally screwed it up. But there's two people that didn't screw it up. And God uses them enormously. The other one, and you already probably know these, Luke 1, 15, John the Baptist is a Nazarite. So he's taken this vow. He's set himself apart. He's eaten locusts in the wilderness. He is the voice of God in the wilderness. And the vow for that is here in Numbers as they're preparing to go into the wilderness. Spiritually speaking, when you're in the wilderness with God, here's this guy that set himself apart and provides a path for the people of God from the wilderness. It's important that you know when you read the New Testament that John being in the wilderness was symbolic of what's going on with Israel right here. So he's a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And the wilderness is often associated with this 40-year journey we're going to take in Numbers. The last person, you may, have, you may know this, you may not. In Acts 18.18, 18, Paul can't make it to something because he's got to go back and fulfill his vows. And that's generally assumed to be that Paul was a Nazarite. And it's something that, so even Levites can be Nazarites. It's a whole level above. It's super secret haven. You can join the army or you can be an army ranger. 
right? And that's what this is. You can be a you can be an Israelite or you can be a Levite or a believer or you can be a Nazarite. They're the super soldiers of God and they set themselves apart. They consecrate themselves. All three of those people, Samson, John the Baptist, and Paul, die miserable deaths. And that's why I'm using the soldier image. If you're going to get set apart by God and used for God, that often leads to martyrdom. So that's at least the biblical record of the Nazarites. They tend to get killed. Um, but before they die, because if that's the worst that can happen, that's not so bad to a Nazarite. The worst that can happen is that they're not set apart for God. The worst that can happen is that they don't have God with them in the end, like Jesus did on the cross, right? The Nazarites want to be in the presence of God all the way through no matter what. That's their goal and that's what they're doing. So they bring truth to a sinful world and they do it really well. Paul brought it to the Gentiles. John the Baptist brought it to the Jews. They speak truth right into the people's lives like a laser beam. Okay, they're good at what they do. Here's the vows. Verse three, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink, no drinking, and he shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink, neither shall he eat any grape juice, nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. Can't even eat the skin of the grapes. Why grapes? And clearly we know the difference between wine and grape juice because we use both of them in verse three, right? So this is not an argument about not drinking alcohol. That's not what this is about. This is don't touch grapes or any kind of vinegar. So what we're talking about is self-denial because grapes are tasty. You take one thing on this planet and the Nazarite just says, I'll never touch that. I'll never let that flavor touch my lips during my Nazarite vows. And if you like grape juice at all, it's universally like in this part of the world, this was like the, the wine was something you brought to weddings, right? It was something that was a celebratory tool, part of the community. It's a blessing in Proverbs 3.10. It's a gift from God in Psalm 104.15. So why would you deny yourself something that's awesome? Because that's what you're doing here. It's generally a good thing. And wine is a tasty, yummy thing throughout the Bible. But the Nazarite sets himself apart and he's going to set himself apart publicly, just like leprosy is a public thing. Not drinking grape juice is a public thing. If you've ever hung out with people that do a lot of drinking and you say, I'll have a Coke, Coca-Cola, you set yourself apart instantly. It's an amazing way to start a conversation. Why are you not drinking with me? Because I choose not to. I want to set myself apart for God and I don't want to lose that part. I want to make something sacred for God and I want to do that. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come to his head until the days are fulfilled for which he has separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy and then he shall let the locks of hair grow on his head. Another visible way to announce to people, I'm going to set myself apart. More so for males than for females, but it's a visual representation it's known in Israel, so when they see somebody with tons and tons of hair, it was seen as a sign of holiness. And to cut the hair is to end the vow, a la Delilah chopping Samson's hair, right? The cutting of the hair was the end of the vow, the end of that season. Um, it could be a limited season then, so you could do like a set period. I'll dedicate myself to the Lord for one year. I'll be a Nazarite. So it wasn't like a permanent thing. You could just do it for a set time. And I know people that do that too. They'll take like a, a sabbatical from work and they'll dedicate themselves to the work of the Lord for one year or something to that effect. Of course, in, in education, that happens a lot in higher ed. Um, six, all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean, even for his father or mother, for his brother or sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. Remember, even the priests of the Levites could go bury their parents, right? There was, but with the Nazarite, none of that. So they're a, a step up. That third criteria, don't go near a dead body, is totally invisible, right? It's not something you would recognize when you saw a Nazarite, that they haven't gone near a dead body. But it is something that they would know it's between them and God. We know their wages for any kind of sin, the wage for that, the consequence for that is death, Romans 6.23, and you don't get to eat from the tree of life, Genesis 3.22.
So when someone has died, that's the natural consequence of sin. Humans are supposed to be eternal beings, but we all die because we all sin. And that's the game, right? That's the, the foundation on which we have a theology. <clears throat> so for the Nazarite to go around death is to be around somebody who has, has this consequence of sin laid upon them. So priests would do this, Nazarites would not. Um, and then again, in Judges 14, we all these are broke. He is drinking in uh, Judges 14, verse 10. He's around dead stuff in verse 8. Uh, and of course, he gets the, the big famous haircut. So he does not do it. The public sin then brings shame and reproach. This public Nazarite thing brings respect and honor as you set yourself apart. Or at least that's what it's supposed to do. Um, I kept wondering as I was rereading through Samson and the judges thing, I kept wondering what would his life have been like if he kept his vows and how much more impact could Samson have had if he would have done the right thing or kept his vows through all this. And I thought that was just kind of a thought. Um, and then I, then it occurred to me, and I don't want to get too far off our Bible passage here, but then it occurred to me, wait, Samson's mom was probably a Nazarite because she had these vows that it mentions. Maybe this is a case of you can't let your parents' faith be an excuse for not taking care of your own faith. And I just thought that's kind of Samson's problem. He's living like the world. He kind of was taken for granted that God was with him because God was with his parents. And then, of course, all this stuff happens. And, and instead of blaming God, he actually converts and does the right thing at the end because he recognizes it's got to be between him and God. Anyways, that's way off our passage. So I'll get back to this. Verse 9. Nazarite vows, no grapes, no cuts, no dead people. Um, so you're going to give up some things. You're going to set yourself apart. If anyone dies suddenly beside him, and you're thinking, boy, God really thinks of everything here. <laughs> so you're walking down the road with your buddy, and they fall dead, and bam, there goes your Nazarite vows are just gone. So then the solution is never be around everyone, anyone or keep a six-foot distance at all times. <clears throat> Don't go outside, don't go anywhere because you'll break there's a possibility you could break your Nazarite vows. God is not that stringent. He actually gives a solution for when this happens. Um, so somebody dies next to you and you have defilement then, and again, this is about defilement, just like the last chapter. It's and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing, and on the seventh day he shall shave it. So you're gonna cut off that hair and start over. And then on the eighth day, you shall bring two turtle doves and two young pigeons to the priest, the door of the tabernacle meeting, the cheapest possible um, sacrifice for sin, if you remember from Levi, uh, Leviticus. And the priest shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned in regard to the corpse. <laughs> what do you mean, Lord? I didn't sin. The person just died and was sitting there. And then he sanctifies his head on the same day. So you're around death. You're going to go and give those sacrifices. You're going to cut your hair. You're going to start over. Verse 12, he shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in its first year as a trespass offering. But the former days shall be lost because the separation was defilement. So he's going to basically get to start over. And if you're, four, if you're doing like a five-year vow and the person plops dead next to you in year five, bummer, start over. Must be that the Lord wants you to set yourself apart a little longer, right? So... There it is. Same law from Leviticus 1 through 5, the burnt offering in verse 11, the trespass offering in verse 12. Because you've studied Leviticus, you know what those are, you know the process, you know what that looks like. Or you can go back and re-listen to the podcast. Verse 13, now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle meeting, and he shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb in its first year without blemish as a burnt offering, one ewe lamb in its first year without blemish as a sin offering, one ram without blemish as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread and cake of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and their grain offering with their drink offerings. So basically he's going to bring one of each of the offerings and put them uh, in front of the Lord. He has not trespassed his vow, so the only one of the five offerings missing here is a trespass offering. So if he successfully completes it, he's going to bring all these offerings to the Lord. This is a get-to, not a have-to. Uh, and they get asso they associate the grain and drink offering together, just like we saw in Leviticus. They just use the term grain offering there. Uh, but they're going to bring it all together, which means he can probably be around grape juice. He just can't drink it. 
So he's going to bring all this in. There's going to be a big celebration. Remember the, uh, the ram and the lamb, the, that peace offering gets shared with the people that are there. So we're going to throw a big party with all your family and friends because you completed your vow. So we're going to have a giant barbecue to celebrate that set-apartness for God. I love when you read this stuff and think, that sounds like a good church. I would love to be at this place. Then the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering, and he shall offer the, as, or the ram as a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord. With the basket of unleavened bread, the priest shall offer also offering the, its grain offering and its drink offering. Then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. Wait a second. They're going to burn hair? Now, if it's been a long vow, that is not a sweet aroma. Okay. So if you've burnt your hair or caught your eyebrows on a candle or something like that, it's, a, it's kind of a ripe smell that would go out, but it would be a unique smell that the whole camp would probably get a whiff of. So everyone in the camp would know somebody just completed their Nazarite vows. And there's going to be free lamb. <laughs> so they'd start trucking on down to the tabernacle and seeing what's going on because it's a Nazarite vow. It's free food. Verse 19, And the priest shall take the boil, boiled shoulder of the ram, this is choice meat, one unleavened cake from the basket, one unleavened wafer, and put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he's shaved his consecrated hair. And the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. Here you go. And, the, and, the, and they are holy for the priest together with the breast of the wave offering. Again, the breast and the thigh and the shoulder are great pieces of meat um, of the heave offering. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. So we're going to have a party and there will be wine. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows to the Lord the offering for his separation. And besides that, whatever else his hand is able to provide according to the vow which he takes, so he must do according to the law of a separation. That verse 21 is a really interesting verse. So if during my consecration, I come into blessings from the Lord, anything else that I might be able to provide for that feast during my consecration, I just give that to the feast. I give it to the Lord. So it could be that a Nazarite goes through that period of separation and like they inherit the kingdom, you know, or something like that. So that might be something where you... Um, you would then just give that over to the temple or the tabernacle and, and you, you set it apart. So whatever else his hand is able to provide means that there's stuff that would be during that period of time that you should really be praying about if you want to give that to the Lord too. Again, this isn't a have to, it's a get to. In our walk for Christ, we can just serve the Lord, do what he tells us to do. He gives us a job to do and we do it. There is no requirement to serve in the church. You can go to a church your whole life and just be in the pews. You get blessed by it. You just enjoy that fellowship and you're there and you go to work every day and you're serving the Lord just fine. You're doing what the Bible commands and asks for you. You're taking care of yourself and you're acting like a good person, right? And it's not your behavior that gets you saved. God's already saved you. But there's no requirement for ministry or anything above and beyond that. But it's a get-to. Um, if you make a vow to do this thing and then you don't keep it, that's actually a sin. So you don't say things like, oh, I'm going to help out with the ministry, and then you stop doing it, or things get in the way, or your schedule won't permit you. If you make a vow to do some of this stuff, if you make a vow to serve the Lord, especially, I think, through the church and whatnot, you need to do it. Because Deuteronomy 32 or 23.22 says it's a sin if you don't keep your vows. Um, very few people will do that sort of thing. And it's extremely, uh, if you look at Ecclesiastes, I'll read this one, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You're a fool if you make vows and you don't keep them. Don't promise that you're going to do this kind of thing. It's, a, it's a, a, a get to, it's not a have to. So there's no obligation. So why would you do it? When you vow a vow unto God and you defer it or not pay it, he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better that you should not vow at all than you should vow and not pay. So don't make commitments to the Lord and in the kingdom. Vows are extremely serious. They bond your soul to the vow, Numbers 32, 30 verse 2. And then it's a sin to not pay it. So it's not a ridiculous requirement. This Nazarite thing, one perspective is this is kind of silly. Grow your hair, don't drink grape juice, and stay away from dead things. Like, that's kind of silly. And then on another level, this isn't that hard of a requirement. Really, the only thing you have to actively do 
is not drink grape juice to be a Nazarite. So it's a, a really, it's not like a demanding thing to do this, right? And I, we all try to avoid dead people. And this is an excuse to not go to funerals, which I'm thinking is a win. Um, so I think at some level, God's not asking a lot of these Nazarites. Think of other religions and the amazing things that people are asked to do to prove their, their worth and their commitment to God. And God's just like, eh, don't drink some grape juice. I'll grow your hair for you. You don't even need to worry about your hair. And uh, stay away from dead people. And, and just, it's between you and me. It's a vow. So it's an amazing thing that God does. It isn't very demanding. It seems kind of silly, but visibly speaking, everybody knows you've made a commitment to the Lord. It's public. That hair growth thing and not drinking wine at, at the festivals, that's going to be something that people notice, right? Because you're not participating in those things with them. You're still there, but you're not imbibing with them at the same time. So you take that part seriously. Then chapter six, as we move from leprosy all the way through these other things, it's almost like we get from worst to best because the last thing in this chapter is the best. It's the blessing of the Lord. And I'll just read kind of through it real quick and then we'll go through each piece because you unpack this blessing. It's phenomenal. There's not a lot of recorded prayers in the Bible that God himself writes, but this is one of them. It kind of mirrors the Lord's Prayer where Jesus teaches them how to pray. In this one, God tells them what to pray, word for word. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his son saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. Woe. The almighty God that made the stars in the universe that expands beyond our comprehension, that made the all the way down to the, uh, the subatomic level at the smallest of detail, that God is going to write his name on these people. That's a blessing. And the priests are going to say this every time they interact with people. So this would be done at the end of a wedding, the end of a Jewish gathering, the end of weekly synagogue, the end of the feast, the end of the sacrifices. They're constantly saying this. You grow up a Jewish person, you've memorized this blessing because you hear it every time you interact with the representatives of God. This is what God says to his people. It's still what God says to you. So listen carefully to what God's saying to you. It's a prescribed prayer and he says very specifically, and this is awe-inspiring, his desire is to, for you to hear these words. The Lord bless you and keep you. He wants you to hear that because he's commanding his priests to say it all the time whenever they end, whenever they um, meet up with these people. So God doesn't leave these words to chance. He doesn't let the priests just make up their own prayers. There is an order to it and God gives them a prescribed thing to say because he wants you to hear it. Okay. Um, Notice in 24, 25, and 26, it says, Lord, Lord, Lord. People see that as an image of the Trinity. So it's a perfectly composed three-part prayer. Um, I, I know we've done a lot with numbers, but this is the book of numbers, and we are in the Old Testament, and there's a lot to the numbers. So Lord, Lord, Lord is, is one way to kind of look at this. The Lord blesses and keeps God the Father. The God the Son smiles and is gracious, and God the Spirit lifts and abides with us. You see the... The, the pattern there. Um, it also says you six times. You, you, you. And the number of man is six. So it's perfectly composed that way too. Um, God wants to bless humans. Forge that into your heart. God does the six things to the humans. He blesses, he faces, he faces, he keeps, he graces, and he pieces. So if you look at just what God's doing in each of those you's, Bless, face, face, keep, grace, peace. Okay? So that's just kind of a breakdown of the peace. If we're a holy priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. I like that verse. You're a peculiar people, you holy priesthood. That's what Peter says to us. If we're a holy priesthood, we should be saying these things to other people. Because he commands his priests to say this. And Peter says we're priests. So at some level, when we speak these words, we're speaking the words of God, and each person in this room, if you've called yourself into a covenant with the Lord, 
you get to say this stuff to other people. This is awesome. This is better than the Nazarite thing because I can still drink my grape juice, right? We get to say this, and this is then what should be in the hearts of the believers. The Lord bless you and keep you. This is God's blessing and keeping, and he wishes the best for his people. Provision, care, safety, and he waits for his people. And then you're thinking, oh, this is awesome. The Lord blesses, and that's just this amazing thing. But I want to condition this because you know how I feel about prosperity gospel stuff. The word bless is barak in the Hebrew. Here's the thing with that word. It, can, it means God's care of a person. And barak is also used for curses. So when it says the Lord bless you, that could either mean a bless or a curse. What it means is God is blessing your life so that you come closer to him. He's going to do whatever it takes to get you close to him. This is the prayer of a parent, right? And sometimes parents have to discipline. So to, if God's blessing you, he may, he may also be disciplining you. And that's the prayer here, that you see God's hand in your life. And if you're going astray, that hand should be pushing you back. That's the blessing. And then to keep shamar in the Hebrew is to guard or have protection over. So no matter how far astray you go, you're still protected and guarded by the Lord. That's what he's asking. God will be your steward. Strong's Concordance uh, translate this as to put a hedge about someone with thorns. That's the word shamar, is to guard a property with a thorn bush. So we even today pray things like, Lord, put a hedge of protection around us. That's this prayer. The Lord keep you. The Lord guard you. He protects you. So we're guarded by God and we're kept by God. Verse 25, may, may the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. We've seen that word face a lot, especially in Genesis. God puts his face in front of people he loves. And he sets his face against people that are against him. We've seen that pattern. But it's panyim, to be before someone, to be in the presence of. And to smile is what that, that face means. Um, uh, so the panyim is to be before someone with a smile. So may God smile upon you. And the smile is reinforced with the word ore or or, which is shine in my translation. It's to become illuminated or lit. May God's smile light your life. Isn't that amazing? Every time you come into the tabernacle and deal with a priest and they finish, they pray that over you. I pray God smiles and that lights your way. That what pleases God is the direction we take. That's what guides our steps. But there's a second clause, and be gracious to you. So now we get the grace. And so far in Leviticus and Numbers, we've seen a lot of justice and a lot of mercy. But here we get grace. May you, as, uh, as we saw last week, may, Gary was saying this, may, may you have what you don't deserve. May you get something you have not earned. May God be gracious to you. And that's what the word is there, kanan, to show favor, to give pity to someone, to stoop to someone in kindness that's an inferior to you. May God do that with you. May God, who is greater than you, come to your level and show amazing kindness to you, a tender and a sweet mercy, right? Or mercy plus. So may you get that thing and may you find it. And I, I like that idea. Um, Every reference to grace that we've seen in the Bible, all the way from Genesis 1-1 to here, grace is always found. This is the first instance where grace is not found, it is given. And that's an interesting word study if you really want to dig into it. I don't want to go through all of the passages because there's like a hundred of them. But I thought that was an interesting turn here. It's not for us to find grace, it's for us to get grace from God. We don't work for it. We don't pursue it. None of this Nazarite stuff has anything to do with it. May it just be given to you. May God be gracious to you. Verse 26, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What's interesting here is the word countenance is the exact same word as the word face in the last verse, panyam. So the question isn't like what that means anymore. It's what's the difference in direction? Are they just being redundant or are they two different directions here? And that's where the word lift up, may the Lord lift up his face upon you, is really relevant. In the first one, may the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, has the image of a God who's above us coming to meet us. But in verse 25, or in verse 26, may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, means he's coming from underneath us and supporting us too. Isn't that beautiful? 
And you just think of this idea. So in Panyam, it's the same word as verse 25. The di only difference between the two verses is the, is the direction from which the face comes. Right? So may the Lord shine upon you and may he lift you up. May he be the stones that you stand on. May he be the thing that your life is rooted in. Nasa is the word lift up and it means to come from below. May God pay attention to you and come around you. May he be your light and your foundation. And then the one that I think the word peace, you already know the Hebrew for that. It's shalom because we hear this so much, which means the Jewish priests have done their job because they should have been blessing shalom over everyone all the time. It's what they're commanded to do. So the fact that we don't speak Hebrew and we know that word means they're doing what they were told to do. Shalom is more than our word peace, though. It's a much bigger word than when we use the word peace. It means completeness, soundness of being, safety, quiet, health, all that stuff. But you are complete as a person. You have been fulfilled. And everything in your life is shalom. It is just good. People say, how are you doing? And you're like, I am shalom. That's what's going on. And that's what the priests were supposed to wish for people, is that they weren't upset. Contrast this blessing to the jealousy of the husband in the last chapter. That is not shalom. That is nastiness. This is shalom. Fulfilledness and abundance of peace, total and complete grace and peace. That's what... God's hope is for us. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. Literally, Israel takes on the name of God. That is exactly what they're saying here. From this point forward, Israel will be God's nation on this earth. And oh, they'll try to get wiped out. There will be the forces of the world that will attempt genocide on Israel multiple times. The Egyptians have already tried it. The Persians are going to try it. In our, in our modern history, the Germans gave it a good shot. But Israel's still here. We don't have Hittites. We don't have Amalekites. We don't have Amalekites. But we do have Israelites. They're still on the planet. In fact, they have distributed themselves all over the planet. Um, and they're one of the only nation, uh, ancient peoples that do. And people say, well, there's the Egyptians. The Egyptians today are largely not the Egyptians that were in the ancient world. Same region of the planet, but not the same group of people due to conquest and Persians and such. Literally, they take the name of God on. What a blessing to be God's children. And before you think you're off the hook for that, you're not. Um, you have been called children of God, too. And when Jesus came and opened that door up, it made it so we Gentiles, we could jump on board with that. Well, most of us are Gentiles. Some of us have Jewish heritage, too. Um, but we get to be grafted onto the vine of the kingdom of God, and we get to be called children of God when we choose to take a vow and become God's children. It's just that simple. And God's desire for us is all this. In context, I think this gives context to all of Leviticus. Because you think, oh, all these rules we got to follow, all this stuff we got to do, and God defines what's bad for us and what defiles us. And oh, we got to do this stuff and the bitter water and all that. But the goal of all of that is peace and shalom in our lives, that we are at peace. I had a good friend this last week ask me about, you know, how can you believe this, this, and that and still have so much peace in your life? And wanted to talk politics. And for me, that's a tough situation because, yes, I'll talk politics with you any day. But I don't care about politics as much as I care about my relationship with God. Everything comes out of shalom. Peace with God is all of it. And the rest of that stuff, the Lord is still on his throne doesn't matter these kinds of things. And, and yes, I vote. I'm not saying don't vote. But it's not an issue of if we can have shalom with one another, which is a Jewish concept too, and that's our prayer for each other. We need to see past our differences sometimes so that we can have shalom. In fact, if we're humans, we all have different opinions on something. We'll find something we vehemently disagree about if we only talk long enough. And that's what picnics are for. But shalom is the one thing we can agree on is that God is on his throne and we love him. And that's more important than anything else. And that's when we study the word and why we like to talk about it and discuss it and even debate about it sometimes. But we also walk away knowing that we have shalom. And that's where when the priests would end a conversation with people, they would give this blessing on them. I'm going to read it one more time and then we'll pray and close up. 
because I want you to, knowing all that about this prayer, let's just hear it one more time. Let these words sink into your heart like you're a good Jewish person. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom. Amen? Dear Lord and King, we just love your word. You are good and you are gracious and you are holy. Thank you, Lord, for all of those things. Thank you for your blessing. Lord, all we want to do is walk with you and we'd like to keep our trip through the wilderness short. Help us to walk with you in truth and in grace and in mercy. Help us to have shalom with each other and peace with each other. Help us to be a blessing to one another, to say these words to each other, Lord, and let our artistic creativity fly in how we make that happen. But Lord, let the words of our mouth be a blessing to each other. How much better a nation we would be if we blessed one another like this instead of constantly looking for each other's faults. Lord, help us to be as you've asked us to be. Lord, help us to not make foolish vows. It's better to not make them if we do. But Lord, if there's anyone in this room that seeks to serve you and sets themselves apart to do so, Lord, may you bless them in that. May that just be a holy and a sacred thing that fills their heart and makes it abundant. Lord, for those that just have to do the work and carry the planks and the boards for your kingdom because that's what you've put in front of them, help us to do it with joy and with peace in our heart because that blessing is for all of us. Lord, thank you for your word. What a privilege to know the words of God and to know what you want to say to us. What a powerful thing. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.